Hello, everyone. Welcome to Personalization Outbreak Podcast number 14. In today's episode, I have the great honor of speaking with Giselle Ruiz about the fundamentals of leadership in the age of personalization. Giselle is an experienced C-suite executive that was a pioneer for women in leadership where she served in EVP roles at Walmart. Giselle will be one of our 30 thought leaders to be featured at our upcoming Leadership in the Age of Personalization virtual summit on October 28th, 29th, and 30th. Giselle will participate on day two, October 29th, where she will examine the new expectations of leaders as a result of the pandemic and recent social unrest. The summit will be hosted by Fairfield University College of Arts and Sciences in Connecticut and streamed by Lightspeed VT Studios in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I'll be connecting live and moderating conversations with speakers from all over the country. You can learn more about the summit and register for free thanks to our sponsors at 2020summit.ageofpersonalization.com. Giselle Ruiz served in C-suite roles in operations and human resources during her 26-year career at Walmart and has most recently retired as the EVP Chief Operations Officer at Sam's Club, where she had full P&L responsibility for $65 billion in annual revenue, 600 facilities, and 100,000 associates. Giselle is now president and CEO of GMR Consulting Group, where she provides guidance on growth strategies and digital transformation for investors and executive teams. With my co-host, Professor Scott Lacey, Today, we will discuss why corporate leadership needs to start acknowledging individuality with a concerted effort to know and account for the realities of the people they lead and why this is so necessary in today's age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Giselle. It gives me so much joy to have you on the show with us, and thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome, Glenn. I was delighted to be a part of this, uh, especially right now and how important it is to cover these types of topics and have a conversation and a dialogue about it. So thank you for inviting me. It's great to be a part of it. Of course. And, And for our audience, Giselle will be a featured speaker at the Leadership in the Age of Personalization Summit. Um that will take place October 28th through the 30th. Uh, She'll be featured on October 29th. So Giselle, leading in the age of personalization is something that you've always done instinctively. It's a mindset you've always embraced, not only in how you lead others, but your view on the world, on business strategy and what optimizes performance. Perhaps this explains why your leadership style brings out the best in people. In fact, uh, this is what you said about what personalization means to you, and I quote, 
Personalization promotes the utilization of diverse perspectives and helps to enhance the benefit of your employees' unique attributes, abilities, and skills. It's a competitive advantage. So Giselle, can you please share maybe an example or a story for our audience that brings this incredible perspective to light? Yeah, sure. The, uh, you know, I think people miss, uh, they misinterpret or misunderstand uh, what personalization means. You know, there are, there are big generational gaps right now, and people often think of the topic as, as a, a generation difference, but it, but it actually isn't. If you truly value um, the differences that make each of us unique and the value that a diverse perspective brings, then why would you try to conform? Why would you try to standardize people's points of view or styles or approaches to um, business challenges. You really want to find a way to empower each of them to be the most authentic self in any type of environment. And uh, that really is the underlying reason why I feel so strongly about the topic and why I'm so supportive of this movement that you're leading, Glenn. Um, in order for us to extract the greatest value of the diversity among us, you have to allow people to be themselves. That's how simple I would put it. So why is it, and I love the way you describe that, but why is it that leaders in organizations that have historically operated through a standardization mindset is so threatened by today's age of personalization? You know, I, I think part of it is just human nature. Uh, we all kind of like to reset on things that are familiar to ourselves, and we often like to see ourselves in other people. And so there's a little bit of a human nature element, and you, some people it's even, um, you know, subconscious um, mm. that they're trying to mold people or guide people to be more like themselves. It actually takes a conscious effort to allow someone sitting across the table from you to be themselves fully, not to try to conform. And I found, um, especially in leadership positions, um, uh, you know, young, talented individuals are trying to model their leaders. Yeah. Well, you're actually taking away from yourself and what you can bring to the table by doing that. Completely agree. And, you know, if I can take this from a, a business strategy perspective, I recently uh, had a CEO uh, share with me that, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble grasping the concept of personalization. It seems a, a bit abstract. And it, it made me feel that, um, it made me think that how can, if leaders think that respecting one's individual individuality is abstract that really make me conclude the, just the power and the mindset that standardization has created in our cultures and in the way we just see business strategy and, and so I, I share that quick story because why is it taken COVID-19 and social unrest for people for leaders to finally recognize that it's the individual and how we serve the individual 
that really has the greatest amount of influence on what our business strategies and futures look like. Why would it take a crisis like this, you think? Yeah. Well, a couple of thoughts on that. Um, first, I would, I would kind of back up and, and ask the question, why does it feel like such an obstacle? Why would people not want to embrace personalization fully? And I think another underlying reason is change. You know, by, pers- by uh, allowing you to be your full self, does that mean that I have to change? I have to change my style, I, you know, and people are pretty much adverse to change. There's always an underlying, uh, you know, um, kind of hesitation about what does this mean to me and what do I have to change in order for you to be your authentic self. So there, there's a little bit of that in the background. Mm-hmm. I think what's really interesting and why this is um, so timely is we've, we've had such a low tolerance for change. And now, um, because of what's happening out in the world today, and especially here in the U.S., uh, there is no more tolerance for not changing. Mm. It is absolutely a requirement. Um, it is about tolerance. And we found a way to explain a way why things are the way that they are. And all of those reasons are, are, they're not relevant anymore. We, we have stopped getting in the way of ourselves. And it's almost been like an awakening because I truly believe um, that there has always been uh, an effort and a passion, at least for me, maybe I'll just speak for myself. I've always had a passion for diversity and being inclusive and allowing people to be themselves. Um, But this, what has happened has actually refueled the fire. Mm. And I do think that that is happening today. Maybe, you know, efforts have been on, on a very large scale to some level. Uh, I mean, from less effort to most effort, and now that scale has completely shifted. Uh, it's absolutely the right time uh, for this. And I think we're going to see a big difference. And I'm sorry, I would say one other thing. This is also not new. Right, this is right. just new to us, right. this generation. Yeah. Generations before us have actually been in this fight with this level of intensity and, and uh this type of, of uh, chaos and trauma and excitement, it's just new to us. And I think that, uh, that we have a huge responsibility to the generations before us who have fought the fight during the toughest of times um, to move this forward in a way that is significant for future generations. Giselle. Go ahead, go ahead, Scott. Because I, I see an opportunity to 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 build a bridge here um, uh, across places besides just the C-suite, right? To, to the greater population, and 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 to between the two. My my thought would be sometimes that longer time frame helps us to really understand why we're changing, as opposed to being told change, right? And when we understand yeah. the the opportunity of a change, that's when we go running for it, right? So what I'm thinking is, can you maybe help me understand? Um, why is it that the low tolerance for change for a time was actually 
right? It was a, it was a benefit. It was something that, that allowed us to do something like there's a reason we didn't do it because it didn't work. Um, we as a society were doing, had this low tolerance and we built this low tolerance for a change because it was producing something. It did something good for us apparently, or it did something for us. I'd like to know what is that, that it was doing for us back when that was a good thing or perhaps a good thing. And, and why has it changed? Why did it fail? Such a great question. Um, you know, I don't think I can pinpoint the why. I'm, I try to understand, uh, you know, the moment in time. Hmm. And I don't, I actually don't have a good reason why it was sustained for such a long period of time. Because um, I think my perspective is one of, uh, maybe you would call it, it's on the other foot, right? So I've, right. I've actually been on the receiving <laughs> end of, uh, some very interesting uh, type of treatment. Okay. Um, nothing significant compared to what has happened in most recent times. Okay. But nonetheless, uh, I, I received a treatment that was not appropriate and that I would consider that I, I was offended by. Yeah. So I don't have a good answer for that. I don't know what's, uh, what's changed. Um, but I know it's happening now and I know it's not going away. It doesn't feel like, uh, this is something that we're going to let go. So Giselle, you, a couple big words, big terms, I should say that I think are phasing people now. Um, this word tolerance is big and I'm going to address that one in a moment. Uh, but the other one you mentioned is chaos. Um, we're not going back to efficiency. It's going to be chaotic for a while. Um, in fact, I think given the, how slow we've been to change, uh, chaos may be part of uh, the end of, take us to the end of our careers. Uh, in other words, we've been hearing terms like corporate transformation. And I have to tell you that every time I hear that, to me, they mean, organizations are in search of being relevant again. I mean, I think that what's happening right now in the decisions that we make are actually bigger than the organizations themselves. What do I mean? Uh, we can say that we're in the retail vertical or we're in the healthcare vertical or we're in the higher education vertical, but these are not verticals anymore. These are horizontals. In other words, we've reached a point that we've been so intolerant to any level of change that now the marketplace is forcing us to be much more interconnected and interdependent on our fellow industries that are really interconnected uh, given that healthcare is part of the, that we're all in the business of healthcare and that we're all in the business of reinventing the way we even look at talent. I mean, let's face it, this chaos or this cri these crises hit us hard and we were completely unprepared. And that's why we're giving or, or paying honor to those on the front lines that are helping us get through it. So my question to you is, how can we get leaders that have been so stuck in standardization and, and, not, and, and that have, uh, have been against the change when they had the opportunity to evolve when times were good uh, to prepare us for the present? But how do we get leaders that just have been so comfortable with how things were done to now exist 
in an environment of chaos? I know that's a tough question, but I just love to get your perspective on it because I think that given your background and what you've done, I mean, you did things, I mean, and we're going to get to how you pioneered women in, C, in the C-suite a little bit later, but you've seen a lot, especially with uh, such a forward-thinking organization like Walmart. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you, de- how do you lead in chaos when you have an attitude? I, I, I love the question, and that's a big question. There's, there's a lot of questions uh, within the question. And go for Actually, it. Just, just keep talking. I mean, I try to, <laughs> it up to, to identify all the layers here, but please go ahead. I, I love it because um, it, is, it is unfortunate that it took such a, uh, a, such a tragic mm. um, situation to propel us but I actually think this has been an absolutely game-changing moment in time in terms of acceleration of what you just described, Glenn, in the fluidity mm. of commerce and uh, communication and information sharing. Uh, it has leapfrogged us past years of what we would have mm. slowly over time been incrementally improving and changing. Oh, well. um, I did have the benefit of watching um, and being a part of Walmart's journey into e-commerce. And, you know, there were times where we, was, we were slow to adopt and there were times where we went uh, as fast as we could go. Uh, and I, I retired at the time when, when uh, well, I've been retired about a year now. So COVID has hit a year after my retirement but I'm always staying in tune and watching what retailers and what other companies are doing. It's just part of my uh, curiosity and my passion and it's, it's in my DNA. And so I find examples of, of companies that were very, very slow to adopt all of a sudden are thrown into a situation where uh, it is a matter of existence now. Mm whether or not you can do store pickup, right? Or for restaurants, clubs, uh, curbside service. Yep. Uh, it has really impacted every single industry in a, in a significant way. And if all this was in the works, and I put that in quotes, right? Because in the works could take any you know, from, from one year to three years. All of a sudden, yeah. you are faced with a situation where you are watching your cash flow yeah. <laughs> just pour out of your business, right? Because of, yeah. of the impact of COVID. Um, so it's been fascinating to see who has been able to move quickly. And a couple of, couple of thoughts on that. Mm. I, I love the fact, and I'll take, uh, I'll take Michael's as an example. I have a, a, a wonderful colleague of mine, Ashley Buchanan, who is now the CEO there, Mm. who proved that you could start curbside service immediately. He hadn't been the CEO for maybe a matter of months before COVID hit. Mm. And they went from no curbside service or store pickup to immediate capabilities within a matter of weeks, maybe months. Um, he just proved to the organization that it could be done. Uh, he just built a new capability that didn't exist. Yep. 
uh, he just showed that through good leadership, you can get things done like this quickly and efficiently. Um, and so we've learned a lot. We have learned a lot through this. Um, but I would also add one other thing. You, you cannot go from, from speed and agility and fluidity mm. back to status quo. Aha. We're so, done with status quo. So, so that's the big question. Um, we're all in the behavior change business right now. And what happens when we find whatever that new normal looks like? Will we go back or will this type of thinking that quite candidly has been serving personalization uh, stay intact? I don't think it can go back. No. Um, so, so, how, so if, again, I'm going to push you on this because I respect you too much not to. What are two or three ways that leaders can lead through chaos? Well, I do think, number one, it's, it's very important to be the calm in the storm. Okay. Uh, if you take on the personality of the chaos around you, so will the people that follow you and the people that you're leading. So it's very, very important that you are the calm with the storm. I think, number two, it's also important not to lose sight of the long term in the midst of chaos because too often you go into firefighting mode yep. and you're only dealing with the here and now. And so it's important to always uh, be of the mindset of how do these short-term decisions impact my long-term mm -hmm. plan or long-term strategy of the company. Mm -hmm. uh, and then number three, I would say uh, amidst all the chaos, don't forget about having a pulse on the engagement level of your people. Mm. Check in with them, over-communicate with them. Um, it's easy to go down into a bunker and start to problem solve with just your senior leadership teams. Mm. Uh, and sure, that's it's probably fast, it's efficient, but you've got to communicate and bring the people along with you. Uh, make sure that you don't leave them in the dark. You know, that last point is, they're all great points. And, um, you know, sometimes it's tough uh, to think that way, but that's what gets you through these chaotic times. But it's the last one that really struck me because, um, because the people need to be communicated to. I mean, they have such a dependency of knowing uh, what leaders are thinking and feeling. And so what do you think leaders are thinking and feeling right now? Giselle? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I think it, the, the thing that is on everyone's mind is, is this really the new normal? Hmm. You know, are we, are we ever going to get past uh, what we're experiencing today. And people are trying to figure that out. Um, I also think there's a lot of time being spent on the behavior changes that you just described. What does that mean to how customers buy, what they buy, how families vacation, how work is being done uh, from home? Uh, you know, um, 
I think a lot of, there's a lot on people's minds about what behaviors are now going to be long-term uh, and the uncertainty. Those are the two things that I think are on people's minds. I, I, there's probably the third thing, I'll tell you what, what's on my mind, Please. is how does, what happens with the social unrest? Are we going to see peace? Mm. Uh, are we going, is there a path to peace? Mm. Uh, is there a path to um, people feeling important and valued and equal? Is there a path to equality? Um, those are the types of things that, that I think about in addition to the first two that I mentioned. So let's go there right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's pivot. All right. So let's do it. So clearly we've, we've been you know, inundated with public statements and press releases, and we've all read them from corporate leaders um, about what they want to do and how they want to support Black Lives Matter. We've seen organizations literally change uh, their products and even brand names in support of uh, the BLM movement. And while these actions that are being taken uh, may be good actions to take, the question I have is, are we committing ourselves to do the hard work? In other words, are we ready to get our hands dirty to make those actions meaningful? Or are they just doing something, meaning organizations and their leaders, to make the critics go away? You know what, Giselle, I fear the latter. I fear the latter. And if that's the case, I think we're gonna end up more polarized than ever before. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I might be a little more optimistic than you, Glenn, on this one. <laughs> I'm glad. No, no, I need, opti I, I need optimism. And by the way, it's not that I'm trying to be, yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to not be optimistic. It's just that I'm tired that for yes. years, yeah. we, we've, let's put it this way, if the yes. first step to equality is, diver is, is having some sort of understanding of diversity, and let's say that that's the, the, the simple first step, um, I mean, I just haven't seen much more than that. No, I get totally understand. It, it, I, so, it, so my point yeah. is that I am, yeah. I'm all about it or else we wouldn't be talking about leadership in the age of personalization. <laughs> but yes, I am a bit skeptical about it. And this is, I why, hear you. this is why this movement started is to get us all thinking that it can happen. But that's my perspective. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Please. No, I, I love it. I love it, Glenn. And you be you, right? It's That's okay. Right. You know it is? It's you know, all right. You know what Don't it is? apologize. And, and you know what? You. I love the fact <laughs> that you said that to me because you know what it is? I am going to continue having that lens until it's fixed. And this is what gives me the energy each day to fight. So anyway, maybe, maybe I should have kind of qualified it, but thank you for getting yeah. me there. So go ahead. No, you be you. And I don't think you have to justify that. That that's kind of where my foundation is, is uh, I, I am not going to place judgment on how people decide to lean up against this effort. I'm only going to help support them and fuel them in at whatever level. I think we often get tied into they're not doing enough and they're not doing this and they're not. Don't get me wrong. I have a very high standard for how I expect leaders 
to act right. on social injustice that needs to be fixed. I have a high personal standard of myself hmm. to act, uh, but I'm not going to put someone down for doing their best effort. I'm going to encourage them to keep pushing. And that's where I hope that we can, that we can start to get to stop pointing fingers, stop putting people down yeah. because it doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Let's encourage every step forward where there, whether it's a baby step or a big step, yeah. but we all need to be marching in the same direction and that's forward. Um, it goes back to having really high standards, I think. And what, what I'm encouraged about is the commitments, you know, like I said before, I spend uh, a lot of time still understanding and, and uh, watching what's happening in business and being part of that. Yeah. I'm encouraged by the commitments that companies and organizations are making from a leadership perspective. I am mm -hmm. encouraged uh, by boards um, because I know the boards will hold them accountable to that yeah. and the public will hold them accountable to it also. Um, I think you, you really have to understand that, uh, especially in today's environment, everything is transparent. So your, your efforts are constantly being measured by the public, by your workers, by employees, uh, your associates. And you'll be held accountable if you're not doing your part. So I, I am encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by the momentum. I want to feel the momentum. And I want to do my part. Um, I think that's incredibly important. Well, I think you do your part every single day. You're, you're, you're inspiring and incredibly optimistic. And, um, and that's what I love about you. And, and so here's the question. Is this about changing old, outdated standards and systems? or how leaders lead and how are they interconnected? I think it's both. I think it has to be both um, because we have outdated standards and processes. And, uh, and I'll take, I'll take um, my board work as an example. Yeah. One of the things that attracted me to Vital Farms uh, was not only the good work and the mission of the company, it's a certified B corporation. They, um, we have uh, pasture-free eggs and the hens are out having a happy life <laughs> and we get to benefit from having the most delicious eggs you'll ever taste. But at the same time, as I was talking to the CEO and the founder, there was, hmm. there was an intentional effort hmm. around building a board that was very diverse in every way not just from ethnicity or gender experience. And, uh, you know, it was a private company, just filed for IPO. In fact, the opening day was today. Oh, congratulations. Uh, and, and they took the opportunity to ensure that the boardroom had uh, diverse representation all the way around. Yeah. So there was an intention Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that is at the heart of, uh, of everything that needs, uh, it's at the heart of what we need to do. Where is your intention? And I'm going to get on a soapbox here for a second, but I feel very strongly about this. Yeah. I talk, uh, when I talk to, uh, 
my mentoring circles and uh, groups at Walmart, I start with a simple question. Do you believe all people are created equal? Yes or no? Very simple question. There's no maybe, sometimes, yeah. somewhat. It's a yes or a no. And then you go from there. If it's a yes, then do your actions, do your decisions, uh, does the way that your organization operate help reinforce the yes or move you towards no? I mean, it's really, really that simple. You know, I love that, Giselle. And you're making me think. And well, no, and I, I'm, I, I think it's important to have pause, right? You're just, this yeah. is a lot to process. It is. And I'm, and I'm thinking even about the audience, how, how they're processing it. Um, you know, Giselle, I, as I hear you say that, it's uh, reminded me of some recent conversations I've had uh, recently uh, with um, C-suite leaders where the question has been from them, what do we do? Right? In other words, what are the specific steps that we do? And uh, I'm encouraged by the question. Uh, and, and maybe this is why I still think about the latter, as I mentioned earlier, is that uh, it's taken, and again, I'm glad we're here now. I hate the concept, I hate how we got here, but we're here now. And, and so how do we articulate, uh, and this is my question to you, uh, Giselle, uh, because I'm going to assume that everyone answers that question that you asked, are we created equally? Yes. So what would be some steps, some things that you would encourage uh, boards or C-suites, given the roles and responsibilities that you've had and, 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 now, and currently have? On what are those first steps that they take? I have to tell you a quick story uh, first, and then I'll get to the answer to your question, Glenn. Perfect. I was at a LCDA conference, uh, Latino Corporate Directors Association conference, and uh, the CEO of Bank of America, uh, Brian uh, Moyhan, was on a panel. And I stood up and asked him a question because Bank of America has done a fantastic job in terms of really pushing the diversity um, yep. uh, effort and agenda forward, diversity and inclusion agenda. And I asked him, I said, you've done such a great job. You are really moving the needle on a lot of different levels from, from C-suite to his board to uh, uh, you know, selection process, et cetera, training programs. Yep. I said, what is, what's keeping other CEOs of companies who are much slower, what's keeping them from moving the needle as you have? Mm. And he sat in his chair and he looked at me, he said, nothing. <laughs> it's a matter of just doing it. And so I'll start there um, because it was, it was not a tough question, but his answer was so profound. Yes. When you were the CEO of the company, you can make the bold steps necessary to create change. Uh, I think a big part of it is 
feeling confident in that, uh, that intention, right? Are all people created equal? Yes or no? And know that your intention is pure. So number one. Number two, just because you're for one group doesn't mean you're against another. Wow, yeah. I really believe that. Um, the matter of fact is that we have underrepresented groups in business. Uh, and by virtue of them being underrepresented, it means they need a little bit of help. So make sure that your selection processes and your training programs are inclusive and you're giving folks an extra bit of help because those groups are underrepresented. Um, so, you know, intention, um, just because you're for one group doesn't mean you're against another group. Uh, make the bold steps that you need to make. It's, it's not gonna be offensive to another group. Yep. Underrepresented groups just needed a little push. Um, and the third is you are not giving up on anything. It's not like you're lowering the bar on talent. Yeah. There are incredibly talented people. Uh, it's, it, it requires a little bit more work to go out and find them. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes that work can be exhausting. <laughs> so but let me but let me share some statistics. But what, what is worth getting is worth the effort, isn't it? One thousand percent it is. <laughs> it's exhaust but this is where I think higher education in corporate America have an opportunity to change the the, the models of of hiring and talent acquisition and in, in breeding pipelines. Um it's not just about the words on a job description or a job title. It's knowing the types of people that have certain skills and attributes. Uh, and by the way, I can tell you right now, and you know this, Giselle, people that come from diverse populations are highly resilient. We understand survival, renewal, and reinvention at a whole other level. Uh, but do people really know that about us? Maybe we're the ones that need to be doing all the transformation. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. But let me let me share. <laughs> let, me, let me share the. Um, I think I'm kidding. Uh, let, let me share some statistics that came out recently from a study done by Brookings. I don't know if you've seen these, uh, Giselle, but let me throw them out and, and get your reactions to them. Eighty percent of the population of the United States identified as white in 1980. By 2000, that dropped to 61%. And it's estimated that uh, in 2019, because the numbers haven't uh, been made official yet, uh, they were at around 60.1%. Uh, and did you know that in the decade between 2010 and 2020, uh, it's the first time in US history in which the white population actually declined in numbers. Now, um, I don't hear enough people talking about this, but the reason I share this is that we've been talking about this majority minority that's going to take place. Um, but I don't know if we've really accounted for the fact that with white populations declining, it's not just about majority minority. There's now a leadership responsibility that now comes from those of diverse populations uh, to help us unify and help white populations that feel that 
something's being taken away from them uh, that there really isn't. These are just shifting times, and it means that inclusion takes in a whole other level of responsibility, and I think we can do a lot better job of that. What do you think about these comments and numbers? So, Yeah, I, I think it all boils down to if you are smart, competent, capable, and a great people leader, there is room for you to succeed, whether you're white, black, Hispanic, or whatnot. It, 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 but however, however, the the opportunity to succeed has to be an equal opportunity, and that's where I think the biggest gap is. Um, it takes a conscious effort to ensure that you that the steps that you take uh, around talent are inclusive. Because again, I go back to, you know, um, human nature is you're going to try to find someone who's, who looks like you, who is like you, who acts like you, who thinks like you. Uh, We like being around like-minded people. Uh, You've got to break that down in a way. Um, That is not how you create an inclusive environment in, in your organization. You have to ensure that that bias is removed from all of the processes, everything from uh, you know promotional opportunities to selection, uh, uh, hiring practices, uh, all of those things. You have to, you have to consciously remove that out of the way. But there's room for everyone. My point is, there's room for everyone. There's plenty of opportunity here in the country. We, li- we live in the greatest country in the world. There's room for everyone to succeed. Do you mind? Can I check in with something here, Glenn? Uh, no permission required. <laughs> Jump in. All right. I've been waiting for you, Scott. Where have you been? Well, there's just, you don't want to interrupt when good things are happening. You just listen and you enjoy and you get inspired. And so I've been, I've been busy being inspired, but I'm, I now want to uh, check in on something. Um, when we're when we're t- thinking about how we're going to be, um, you know, or how we can promote this more this more more inclusivity, um, as opposed to say diversity as we've understood it before, um, I see a lot of groups and a lot of organizations, and even just all of us in our parlance, where we're shifting from just saying diversity, and a lot of times we're we're saying diversity and inclusion because we want to make sure that we're telling people. By the way, we're talking about a new diversity. We're not the old diversity. So what <laughs> I want to do is I want to ask you about, um, and we'll do a little mini speed round here, but I've got three different words that I think, unless we do the same thing we just did to diversity, we're going to be in trouble because we can do all of this work, but because we're all using a same word in many different ways, um, mm-hmm. we're going to lose track and, or traction. So, so if diversity, if you'll go with me on this, but if diversity has moved in now the age of personalization towards more of an inclusion, right? Diversity and inclusion. How does the term change for say, let's start with um, efficiency. So efficiency mm-hmm. in the old school, how is it different in the new school? Hmm. Oh, I, I don't know that it is. Uh, the, the, the definition is different. Yeah, that's, uh, what, that's, what, yeah, that's what I'm going for. Yeah, I, no, I'm saying I don't know that the definition is different. I think the perspective. 
So um, with, the definition with, is different. So with yes, because yes, because I think we associate efficiency with same okay. or similar, and I'm saying no, no. Actually, efficiency is not conforming, letting people be themselves. Uh, you know, not having to work so hard to be the same. Mm. Let allow people to be different. Um, so I think it's more about the perspective of the definition. That's how I think it's different today. Okay. And by the way, Scott, I, I, if I can just react to what yeah. Giselle said is uh, this, how I interpreted what you said, Giselle, is that yeah. efficiency needs to be more resilient mm. because efficiency doesn't guarantee resilience. Keep going. Well said. Well said. Though, right? Is that that rather than saying efficiency is bad, standardization bad, we're doing that othering again when we start going in that direction. What we're saying is that efficiency is misunderstood, and we need to we need to dive deeper. And diversity is misunderstood. It's it's there for good intent, and we've been using this in, in good in good ways. But it's not enough right now. We need to we need to hone our idea to come to a bigger version of it. And so diversity brings in inclusivity, right? And now we just have efficiency bringing in nonconformity, difference, right? That's that, it feels inefficient. But what, we're, what I'm thinking we need to do is start promoting the fact that it is efficiency. We don't yes. give this up and say, look, I understand this isn't as efficient as the last time. The last time wasn't efficient. Look where we are right now, <laughs> right? It might've been efficient in the short run, but the long-term meant it put us in this situation that our country has never seen before, right? Let alone our planet. So there we go. So we just did efficiency and I'll move this faster. I'll just do one more. Um, and this is the one I was going to lead up to. So I'm skipping a few. I was going to go with talent. I was going to go with a few other things, but I want to know what's the new definition or perspective on profit? p and wow, That's, wow, great question. Uh, I don't I, Wow, that's a great question because there's a lot surrounding that, right? Yeah. I think um, conscious capitalism Ooh. is so much more important today uh, than it was, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Uh, there's a new standard for what the public expects of companies and boards and CEOs. It it has to, it can't be uh, profit can't be at the expense of goodwill um, and humanity. Uh, that's how I believe it's changed in today's world. Oh, that's good. I love Glenn, it. I'm going back to you, man. No, no, no. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll throw one out uh, on, on that point. It's a tough question. Um, again, let it simmer. It may not catch right away. Uh, <laughs> profit will be co-designed. It won't be prescribed anymore. So that's what conscious capitalism is a co-designed well co profit or a co-designed P&L is essentially one way to understand this conscious capitalism. Is that, am I hearing this right? We're saying that it, the individual will help influence how we define profit in the future. It won't be dictated nor defined for us. Because it, because it will be the individual as a consumer that's going to make the decisions now on what brands are going to be loyal to. This is not just about talent in the workplace. These same dynamics that have been discussed today are equally true in the marketplace. 
We're going to need a new economics, man. We need economics, <laughs> and it's not going to be just about money and, and numbers. It's crazy. Well, let's just say this. The models will have to be interrupted constructively, uh, and that may slow things back down, which I actually think that's happening right now. And then those that do it right, profit will accelerate. Okay. Because I think what we're doing is cleaning up things we should have been cleaning up all along. And I think in that, prof in that process, organizations are going to see where the growth was that was always ignored. Glenn, can I add something to that, please? Please, of course. Uh, because I, I, I don't think it slows anything down. Hmm. Um, in my experience, you know, under the, uh, the leadership of our CEOs at Walmart, and you know that uh, I'm very loyal to Walmart. I love the company. But from Lee Scott to Mike Duke to Doug McMillan, it, they have shown through their leadership hmm. that you can do so much good work. In fact, they turned the table around and said, it's our duty. It's our responsibility to do good work, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world, while we also take care of our shareholders. Sure. So it's not a matter of slowing down. It's a matter of the, these decisions aren't that hard to make. Just do it. Just start moving in that direction because it's not a one, it's not a or, it's an and. Mm. You can uh, be a profitable company and help feed the hungry. Yep. You can be a profitable company and help uh, reduce mm. uh, waste in landfills. Yeah, it's true. And it, it's, uh, it's something that more and more companies are, are doing, which I'm also very encouraged about. But I, the, the expectation of consumers is growing. Mm -hmm. which means we'll go faster. Has to. Yeah, I get it. Has to. I, I, get, has I, to. I, I, I get your point. Thank you for, you know, you're really good at keeping me <laughs> in check yourself. <laughs> See, that's why you've done what you've done. Yeah. <laughs> so, so thank you for that. So on that point, I, I, I want to make sure that I get to this, and I know we're running out of time, mm -hmm. but, you know, I, I just to just so our audience uh, knows this about you and, and, and you're very humble about these things, but uh, you, and I know you're going to be humble about this, but you know, you are a pioneer for women in the C-suite, uh, especially those uh, Latinas and other, uh, other women from diverse populations. Um, and you mentioned earlier on in the show that, Sometimes there were some struggles with maybe that transition, and I didn't know specifically what you're referring to, but um, I almost feel that what we're talking about right now, even though it should be part of what we do and uh, we should have been doing this a long time ago, let's just forget about the past and let's say now the, now is the starting point. We're pioneering this new effort to recognize the importance of personalization. Um, when you got when you started going up the ladder at Walmart uh, as a woman, as a Latina. Uh, one simple question: What did you learn in that pioneering process, and how can you share those learnings for others that are going through it right now? 
Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. And just a bit of clarity when when I spoke earlier about my uh, uh, the the few times in my life when I have uh, not been treated equal, yeah. uh, they were actually outside of work. <laughs> they were outside of work and yeah. in very casual places. But anyway, thank you um, for that clarification. Yeah, no, I've I've had an amazing experience. I've been so fortunate at Walmart to work for incredible leaders who who saw something in me that I hadn't recognized myself. Hmm. And along that journey, uh, I would see I would say that was constantly reinforced. Uh, we have a tendency to undervalue ourselves. Um, because we are humble. Our culture is one of uh, humility and not being boastful. Uh, so the constant lesson throughout my career was that I was undervaluing myself and my contributions. What I thought that I was contributing was just my job. I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing what uh, I'm being asked to do. But it was seen as uh as special and extraordinary and yeah. uh, which differentiated me, uh, you know, and allowed me to have the opportunities that I had this incredible journey at Walmart. So that uh, if I had to talk to my, you know, my assistant manager trainee self uh, 27 years ago, wow. I would say lean into uh, who you are and what makes you who you are even harder, hmm. even harder. Um, I say this to, you know, mentoring circles all the time. What makes you, you is a gift. If you try to become someone you're not, we don't get the full benefit of you. Um, and I think, uh, for young adults, uh, for young professionals that tends to get lost. Um, you assume that, that conformity is required in order for you to succeed or to survive even. Uh, and that's not the case. So, so on that note, I, um, so essentially you were discovered. In other words, someone discovered what made you unique and extraordinarily talented before you discovered it about yourself. So what, so when I hear that message, um, what's the message to leaders who maybe haven't quite discovered the talent within their organization that should be discovered? That's a great, great question. Um, first, you have to stay connected with your folks. Yep. If, if you stay in a small circle, you're, you're only going to be in front of the same people over and over again. So you're not going to have the opportunity to actually discover uh, the real talent in your organization. So stay connected with your associates and with your people. And then the second is act on it. When you see talent, when you experience something, uh, and, and sometimes Glenn, it's intuition. Um, Create the opportunity for that person to shine. You know, I think uh, an old way of thinking about leadership is that it's all about you and 
Hmm. You know, you do all the talking in a room and you um, kind of take over uh, the team. No, great leaders today allow, they create opportunities for people to shine. You And I don't even want to use the word empower because empowering uh it's, it's a subtle way of saying, I'm giving you power. No, no, you have the power. I'm just going to create a situation where you get to present, you get to speak, you get to be highlighted. Uh, and I think great leaders do a, a wonderful job of that. And it doesn't have to be on a grand stage. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it, it could be something very small, but you need to, give them the opportunity to shine. Giselle, that's, that's, you just gave the best <laughs> advice for higher ed too. And for teachers, I'm not talking about the admin for teaching. That's exactly what teachers are doing. The teachers that are finding success right now in terms of, of embracing the ambiguity and going for it and trying to just reinvent and figure out a way to do it. those who have made the most, especially when everything shut down last semester, those people who are able to do exactly what you just said, Stop being, the, as we're calling, we talked about this before, a sage on the stage and start being this person that's recognizing talent and, and, and inspiring and helping to, to, to sort of make sure they see it too, but making, doing that not with necessarily just words, but by, do it by, by curating some opportunity and yeah. letting it grow. I love it. Huh. And here's, here's, here's a really important caveat. Okay. If you get it wrong and, and they trip, and they fall, you need to be okay with that. You need to make it okay for them to trip or make a mistake. Wow. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yes, I do. Of course. Uh, because it's on you. Yeah. So, so Giselle, I'd like to wrap this up by, uh, and I don't know if you, I mean, you're so smart. You probably saw what I was doing here, but um, I was hoping we'd get to this moment. Because see, what you just revealed is what we should be doing right now. This is how you move from standardization to personalization and find that right balance in the middle. Leaders need to, if I make, I'm going to quote you. Yes. Uh, you need to stay connected. You need to act on, act on it when you see something distinct about someone else, create opportunity, give them a platform. You see, what you just said is, what is how essentially leaders need to shift their thinking from power to influence. How our responsibility is all about people. And it always has been. But because we're trying to protect our domains and these hyper standardized organizations that sometimes don't give us, uh, create the culture or conditions to do so, uh, we don't act on it. But that's how you think. That's what you've learned at Walmart. That's how you are naturally wired uh, to operate. So uh, that was my whole point in saying, and I'm so glad you actually created the window to go down this path, is that getting discovered isn't just the individual's opportunity or, or responsibility, I should say. It's actually more so the leader's. The leader. 
Anyway, I yes. please comment because <laughs> and, and if, if you don't mind, why don't you take that uh, kind of rebuttal and, and leave us with something inspirational because you have gotten, you got to the point where I think people as leaders have forgotten um, that it's their duty to create. Yeah, I, well said. And thank you for being so taking my words and, and making them, uh, turning them around in such an eloquent way, Glenn. Um, it really boils down to you, you are not giving anything up when you give the power to your people and you allow them to shine. And if anything, um, it should fuel your motivation and, and, and uh, it should be like a way for you to drive yourself. That's what drives me. I, I came to work every day at Walmart completely excited because I worked in a dynamic company with a lot of exciting um, challenges and a lot of really wonderful leaders. I was surrounded by great leaders, but what really got me, got me out of bed was every day I knew I had the opportunity to bring out the best in somebody, in someone and to be able to watch people grow in their careers and succeed in their careers. That's what fueled my fire and leaders today have the opportunity to do that. You are an incredible role model for how leaders need to be leading in today's age of personalization, Giselle. And I can't thank you enough. I'm, you know, when we have these podcasts, sometimes we don't know where they're going. And, uh, but that's by intention or else they'd be overly standardized. But um, it's when we have these types of discussions, do we start to realize uh, why we're having them and uh, the wisdom that you've imparted upon us today and, of course, our listeners, um, I think this one's going to stick for a while. And I really appreciate your time. And I can't wait uh, to take this conversation to a whole other level when we get to the summit, because um, this is the conversation that needs yeah. to be had. So uh, before I sign off, Scott, any thoughts, parting words? How about I take it just to, for, the, for, for the sort of the retro fit to what we just did. And I just want to say one thing, because there was a, a lot of this conversation that made me so excited. But one of the things I really loved in the middle was essentially we had the optimism, pessimism or optimism <laughs> sort of thing. And I just wanted to touch back on that because what I wanted to make sure that maybe we're all thinking, and I don't mean like the outside world, but each one of us is an individual who tend to be maybe more optimistic or who maybe who tend to be sometimes a little bit more, we might call it realistic or pessimistic. The deal is, Optimism and despair are part of the same tide. Hmm. And we will be in both of those tides. There will be times when our best optimist, our most effective optimist, <clears throat> uh, might feel a little despair, <laughs> and that's okay. And so by recognizing that we need to allow our optimists to have moments and actually long moments of despair, and at the same time, let's not count our despaired people, the desperate, right? The despaired, let's not forget that they also can have some optimism. And so let's remember, we're all going to take turns on that. And so to bring us back, let's follow what you said, Giselle. We need to stay calm in our, st in our space, right? We need to engage our team, right? Recognize that talent. And most importantly, we need the long-term view, which clearly shows there are tides. So with well that, 
Well said, Scott. So Giselle, thank you very much. And as I always sign off with, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you very much, Giselle. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.